Well, good evening. It's great to be here. And um, yeah, I was, uh, when he asked me to speak, I was uh, super excited. Um, but I have to confess that um, the process of preparing it has been an, an adventure uh, for me. So just, to, I guess, maybe to help give you a little bit of perspective on who I am, since you don't, most of you don't know who I am. Uh, I grew up in, on the East Coast in Pennsylvania and uh, started following Jesus about the age of five and uh, just had some different opportunities growing up and kind of figuring out what God was doing with me, felt like God was inviting me into ministry. Uh, I ended up doing my undergraduate at Penn State and then on to seminary in New York. Uh, during that time, I did an internship out here in Ellensburg where I met this amazing woman um, who was working with Young Life at the time. And we started dating, and then uh, she went back with me. I finished up school. We've been married for almost 25 years, and I've got four kids. One of them is 22, and um, another one's 19, and one 14, and one 9. So we've kind of got the fun run of the age. It's always fun trying to hold a conversation with a 22-year-old and a 9-year-old. So, um, but God's been good. I've, I've been involved in ministry for over uh, almost 25 years um, working with children and youth, college age, uh, and family ministries, small groups, and then my last run was as an executive pastor. And so in the midst of that, um, whenever I graduated from seminary, as I was looking to get into ministry, um, I had a year that was a funky year um, as I was applying, and people really seemed to like me, but um, Nothing was open at the time, and so I kind of had this um, year that I built futons uh, and ended up coming out here to Tacoma um, at the church actually where uh, Michael's mom's at, um, at the building that they were in. And when I got there, I felt like, this is great. Like, God had just kind of opened my eyes to see some things there that I thought, he's going to do some amazing things here, and I just can't wait to see what this is like. And so I, I, I started to dig in as I was working with the youth in college age there. And things did not come about as uh, God had kind of shown me. And I kind of started scratching my head and wondering what was going on. Uh, things at the church started to go sideways uh, very early on. I was only there for a couple of years. Uh, the lead pastor did not want to do much in the way of leading. Uh, he wanted to just retire. Uh, and so there began to be some dialogue between he and the board. As a result, there was some um, frustrating times for me in navigating through that. The church kind of got into a situation financially where they had to cut some, some fees. And so in the process of that, while I was on vacation in Pennsylvania with my family, I got a phone call saying, hey, we need to cut a bunch of money from our budget, so you're going to get one more paycheck and then you're done. It's always a great thing to hear on your vacation. Um, and coming back then, a short time after that, my son was born at, uh, at the hospital in Tacoma, and that was, uh, I thought that was going to be a good thing, and it was um, r really rough. I just about lost him and my wife. As a result, the, the doctor that um, did the delivery was removed from any hospital in Tacoma because of my son's birth and how she handled that. And... In the midst of that, the lead pastor resigned and ended up splitting the church, and I kind of began the, the guy that was taking over and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and I was getting in trouble regularly because I didn't have a suit and tie to preach from on Sunday morning, but all I had was what I had. 
And I'm scratching my head going, God, what in the heck are you doing in this? And, and I thought ministry was going to be better than this. Um, realized that I, I wasn't going to be able to sustain there and needed to move on. And so I did. Uh, it, it was a rough couple years and was one of those places where I began to ask questions about what God was doing and when he was speaking. And I had a good friend who I had met uh, in Ellensburg that was good friends with my wife. And he actually was count doing a, working at a school as a counselor in the area. And so we kept in contact. And I remember him saying to me as I was trying to process through this, he said, you know something? I think you were made for the wilderness. And I didn't, didn't take that as like something to bear, but as something to say, hmm, God, what are you doing with this? And so my journey in, in, as this topic of, of wilderness is, I've got lots of stories I can tell you, and some of them will come back up. Ministry was brutal, has been brutal for me. And as I process through this question of when God feels far away in prayer in the wilderness, um, I was super excited to talk about this, but man, as I've dug into it, I've felt like I don't even know where to start. And this morning as I was praying about it, God kind of gave me a, a picture. I, I just was reworking my deck. We had to tear a bunch of the boards off. Well, we had to tear all the boards off to the studs and add a bunch of stuff. And I thought, you know, what would it be like for me to kind of communicate that to to somebody what I went through and, and there was lots of pieces and lots of parts lots of thing, videos I had to watch to figure out that, what the heck I was doing tools to use that I just kind of be like I don't even know where to start to tell you and I feel the same with this but I'm going to give it a shot because there's good in it and God has met me in a lot of ways in it and I think the wilderness is one of those places where we want to run from and be rescued from but I think God has other plans in it. So I'm just going to kind of walk through and uh, throw a lot of things at you. And then we're going to kind of settle in at the end talking about kind of what, what does it mean that God is far away? And then a little bit of how do we get to that place where we feel like he's far away? And then what do we do in that? So that's kind of the, the place that we're going to move through. So let me just invite you to pray um, as we jump in. Father, Son, and Spirit. Thanks that you're a good God. Thanks that you're present. Thanks that you got good things to say tonight. And I pray that your word would speak. May they hear from you tonight. And may they be encouraged to keep following. And to stay close to you. So help us as we ask questions about things that are hard. And trying to figure out what you're doing that we most of all would know that we're loved by you and that you're with us. So help us, I pray. Help me in your name. Amen. So when we talk about the whole idea about God being far away, if you look in the Bible and you look at it kind of from a theological and practical aspect, there's a couple, of, lots of verses that, that jump out. Proverbs 15 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23 says that I'm the God who is near. 
not a God that's far off. Can a man hide himself in a hiding place so I don't see him, declares the Lord? Do not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Uh, the, the theological response to God being far away is uh, he's not. <laughs> right? And so, you know, I, I, we could just end tonight right there at that, right? So, what, you know, if you feel like God's far off, he's not theologically. Okay, so just get over it and move on. Right? That helpful? Can we finish there? You can go to Applebee's early that way, right? Right? So that's, that's what the Bible te- speaks to us on, right? But, but there's this sense of feeling that God is far off, right? Now, if you were like me, I grew up on the East Coast, and the East Coast is way more, um, you, you know, you, you follow these steps. There's a, a process. Emotions kind of get moved to the side because they're not valid and you kind of run from them and you just mentally figure out what God is like and then you just go there and you ignore the rest of it. The problem is that the Bible's filled with emotions too. If, uh, Ecclesiastes 3 talk about a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn. Romans says that re- you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And Ephesians says you're supposed to be angry but not to sin. Those, those are kind of emotions to me. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think emotions are a good thing. I, I think they're the things that kind of help us to pause and pay attention. It, it's kind of like when, we, when you feel something hot, when you stick your hand out towards a burner or, or a fire, and you realize, okay, if I go any further, something's gonna, I'm going to get burned, right? Y- your senses start to pick up and say, hey, you need to pause and pay attention to what you're doing right now. And I think our emotions do the same thing. Something triggers in us emotionally where we are invited to pause and to pay attention. Not that we're supposed to be driven or dictated by them, but but God has created them in us. And so that feeling that God is far off, I think is a pause to us to say, what's going on? When I was in State College, um, I kind of, I was out here for a while, and it was in Tacoma, and then Wenatchee, and then back to State College, uh, back where I grew up at, um, and I would preach here and there, and one of the, one of the people in the church would call me the crying pastor, because whenever I would preach, I tended to cry, and so that was a, um, a process for me, because I would get emotional. And so in the process of that, then uh, I was seeing a counselor to kind of process through some calling and some wilderness stuff that I was dealing with. And so in, in the midst of that, I had the counselor saying, yeah, he's been here because he attended the church too. And so he, he, he was like, you know, people are wondering what's wrong with you. Like, are you depressed? Is there some kind of mental thing going on? What's... But deep down inside, I was like, God, there's something of you in this. And I can't quite figure it out what it is. And as I kind of process through that, I begin to see that uh, you will find that I, I could cry at lots of things. I could cry when I'm preaching. I could cry when I'm driving down the road and listening to music, whenever I'm just sitting alone by myself. I've cried in front of some of the, the people that I supervise as I'm reprimanding them for the things that they're not doing right. Because in those times, I've caught glimpses of God. And it brings emotions to me. And it's that sense that he's moving and doing something. 
And we live in a world that we either are driven by our emotions or we're driven by our brain, and we can't to figure out that the two actually go together because God made them. And walk into that and be attentive to that. The other part I just kind of want to help as we, to give you a little bit of framework, is just this, this place of prayer too. And I'm bummed that I wasn't able to be here at your conference. But there's a definition of prayer that I want to give you that has been very helpful for me and is one of those that, that is the grid by which a lot of what I'm going to speak on tonight is about. And I, and I found it out of a book, The Spiritual Life, and it goes like this. For too long, we have thought of the Christian life as essentially either involvement in political, economic, social concerns that wear us out and result in depression or activity, which keeps the church intact and doctrinally pure. Our primary orientation cannot be to an institution or some great cause or even other people, but first and forever to God. Unless our identity is hidden, God, we will never know who we are or what we are to do. Our first act must be prayer. To be human is to pray, to meditate both day and night on the love and activity of God. We are called to be continuously formed and transformed by the thought of God within us. Here it is. Prayer is the disciplined dedication of paying attention. Without the single-minded attentiveness of prayer, we will rarely hear anything worth repeating or catch a vision worth asking anyone else to gaze upon. Prayer is a disciplined dedication of paying attention. When we talk about God and Him feeling far off and how we enter into prayer, prayer is way more than us coming with our stuff. It's an attentiveness to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So this far away thing, what is it and how do we get there? Uh, I think there's lots of ways. Uh, some of them we, you, you probably can identify. Um, they can be triggered by big things or just little things. Uh, they can be triggered because uh, we're in comparison, right? We, we see some things going on in other people's lives and we're like, oh, they're close to God, but we're not seeing those in our lives, so we must be far from God. If we just get closer to God, we're going to be doing what they're doing, right? And like... Obviously, we set the standard at Jesus because that's our goal to be like him. And like we should be healing people all the time and casting out demons. And I did a quick little run. So Jesus was, did his ministry for, for what, three years. We've got 37 miracles recorded. Not to say he didn't do other ones. But if you divide that out, he basically was doing something like once a month. Right? But when we read it and we're in it all the time, it's like Jesus is doing it like this all the time. And when we don't see that, then it's like, gosh, we're pathetic. God must be far from us. We're not doing it right. Sometimes it's just this, this time thing in our life. We, we feel like it's been a long time since we've really actually encountered God. Maybe it feels like he's gone radio silent. Worship is dry. The guy up front speaking is really boring. We're not getting anything out of it. Reading is empty. We just feel this distance because it's, it's been a while since we've heard from him. So we must be far away. If you had the chance to do any reading on Mother Teresa, I think 
we could probably say she probably did some good stuff, right? Um, but if you, if you read her diary that has come out in the last few years, um, you'd find out that when, when God gave her that invitation to go and do the work that she was called to do, he went silent on her for 10 years. And she wrestled with, with what he was doing and why he wasn't present and why she couldn't hear him. And, and finally, uh, she had some people um, come into her life and, uh, and uh, you know, bless the society that she had created. And, and God kind of stepped back in after 10 years and spoke. And she was super excited and thought, this is it. He's back. Only for a short time later to go silent again. This time, for 40 years. 50 years. And, and we look at what she's done, and we go, what? That's not, that's not, that can't be right. Something's wrong. Sometimes there's just hardships that come up. We've got major events that catch us off guard. Maybe it's an illness to ourselves, maybe to somebody close to us, and we just um, get rattled. And we feel like, where the heck is God? How, how, how did that happen? God couldn't be present in that. What am I supposed to do with that? Sometimes, and this is a real one, is sin, right? Isaiah tells us this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sometimes we go to that extreme. When God seems silent, it's like, oh gosh, I screwed up. What have I done wrong? What do I need to do to get back to him? What do I need to ask forgiveness for? Sometimes you're right on track. But that's not always. Because there's another one that leads to silence in the wilderness, and that's obedience. We don't, we don't want to like that one. The problem is, you just read the book of Job. And you don't even have to read far. You just got to read the first verse, right? You know the story, Job. You know what he lost, what he went through. The first verse in Job 1, 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that God would be distant from. So when we're asking that question... How do we pray when God feels far off? I, I want to I rework it and, and really ask the question, is how, how do I stay present to God? What does it mean to stay present to God? And not what does it mean to stay present to God when he's silent? Or what does it mean to stay present to God when hard things happen? Or what does it mean to stay God when I can't hear him? But what does it mean to stay present to God? Because as, as I process through this, that's the question that I keep coming back to. I, I'm not the one. I, I've read more scripture in, in this talk here than I probably have done in like 10 other sermons I've done. I'm usually the guy that like sticks in a passage and we stay there and we work through it. But this wilderness stuff and this God being silent is everywhere. And there's no, like, nice, clean 
passage where you can just exegete it and be like, here's your answer. It's all good. Do this, and you wander out of the wilderness. You find it all over Scripture. So what do we do? Well, as we look at what we do, I, I want you to keep the couple things that I've talked about. One, God is present. Theologically speaking, reality speaking, he's present. And I don't say that to shame you and to make you feel bad when you don't feel it. I just say that's reality. Because I know what it's like when he's not, when he feels distant. But he's present. It's also important that feelings are real. And I think they alert us to something more going on. But so what do we do with it? And this is kind of where I want to land tonight. And give you, I want to give you three things to do in the midst of that. And again, these aren't three things that are going to like <laughs> open up the heavens and part the sun. Or clouds, not part the sun. But there are three things that I think as I've walked through wilderness and times that help us to um, remain present with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because that's the invitation is to be close to Him. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is, is to pray. Psalms 139 is an, is an awesome passage. And if you haven't um, dug into that and... Um, prayed through that, I just want to encourage you to do that. It is a psalm that starts out and is heavy with the sense that God knows us, that you are known. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through, where you've been. He knows it all. He's, he's not some distant God that has forgotten that you've got to yell at him to get his attention, to remind him, hey, yo, I'm still down here. He knows. And if you look through the passage, there's you know, verses 1 through 16, 19 through 22, talk about how God is present and he knows us. It also talks about how he fights for us. But Psalms 139 also gives us words to respond. The opportunity to praise him and thank him in the midst of, of him knowing us. And finally, it gives us that invitation that I think is important as well. For him to identify sin in our life. To, to be open before him to say, hey, if I'm in this wilderness because of something I've done that's stupid, would you help me? And he's good like that. Again, not because he's angry and ticked at you, but because he wants to welcome you back. So what's that look like? Because oftentimes when we get into the wilderness, at least for me, I don't even know what to say to him. I don't know what to ask for. I, I get tired of keep asking the same thing. It's like, God, I think you've already got this. I've already, I've already asked this, but you, you're not responding. You're not answering. As I moved through my years, uh, I, I told you about the little, my hard time in Tacoma when I went to Wenatchee. Um, Ministry ended there really rough, um, and I spent a year kind of uh, 
doing some odds and ends things, moved back across the U.S. because um, my name had kind of gotten blacklisted for things that had nothing to do with me. So I moved back to Pennsylvania, and I was working at Penn State um, in the athletic department um, and then doing some part-time ministry. And that was a really hard time because I thought, I'm just going to go back there. I'm going to work for a little bit and get a job and then back into ministry. And it was a wilderness, and God was silent. And I couldn't figure it out. And I got ticked lots of times. Told him what I thought of him, what I thought of the church. I couldn't understand what was going on. And it was in those times that I just got to that point where I was like, I don't even know what to say to you anymore. You know, I've poured it out over and over and over, and you're doing nothing. You're saying nothing. You're not opening up the door for ministry. Things have gotten frustrating. In my time there, in the midst of that, I was on staff at a church, and I, I had, we had a major, the, the church that I was on staff part-time with, I was on staff with a good friend of mine. And he totally turned his back on me. And it killed me and my family. And I thought, what in the heck are you doing? I didn't have any words to respond to him. And in Psalms 139, those were my words. That somehow he knows me. And I'd pray him back to him. Because I had nothing else. But I also got some other scripted things. Like I, I, I ended up getting into this, the Academy of Spiritual Formation and got exposed. I, I grew up in an, an, um, a Protestant church, evangelical church. And so I was, uh, spent many weeks down at um, the Abbey, down just uh, east of Salem had a chance to go in and be in Vespers and all this tradition of this rote stuff. And I began to meet the God who loved me again. I didn't have words, but others had scripted those words. If you find yourself in those places where it's just like, God, I don't even know what to say to you. That's fair. I, I just want to encourage you that there's lots of who have gone before you who felt the same place. I've got a good buddy who's an Anglican priest. They do that, that stuff all the time, over and over and over and over. But it's rich. And God is present in it if you'll stay present with him. I just encourage you to pray. The second thing I want to encourage you on is this. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip open to John. John 1. John 1, verses 35 through 42. I'll read it for you. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. I always loved this passage because it was one of those things like I wanted to be like John the Baptist. I wanted to be someone in ministry who when I pointed to Jesus, people just like turned and followed him and and had nothing to do with me. But something else in this encounter has been an anchor for me through some really hard times. The interaction, Jesus, or John says, hey, look, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples turn and start to follow him. And somewhere as they're following him, Jesus probably gets this weird feeling like, I got some people following me. What the heck is going on with that, right? Turns around, and there are these two guys following him. And so he asks the question, what are you seeking? That is worth sitting with for some time. If you don't have anything else to say. Answer that question. If Jesus was turning and saying to you. What are you seeking? And what's their response? Uh, we we want to know where you're staying. Now. That's an interesting response. If you ask me. But what is more interesting. Is that Jesus doesn't answer the question. And I think there's a reason. Jesus' response is, come and follow me. Now, what's important and significant about that? Because here's the deal. If Jesus would have said, hey, I am staying at this house down by this street. Just two blocks down, third house on the left. If he would have given them directions, what's our propensity to do? Cool. We'll catch up with you later. We've got to go talk to our friends. We've got to go buy this stuff at the market. We, we've got to go run these other errands. Um, I've got to use the bathroom, or I'm kind of hungry, and so I'm going to go stop at Applebee's. And I'll catch up with you later, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give that option. Jesus doesn't say, hey, whenever you want to catch up with me, that's fine. Just, just circle back, and we'll be good. He says, come and see. See, the problem with that is Jesus is inviting them to follow. And and when we follow, our choices are gone. Because we don't get to pick when we follow. We don't get to pick how long the trip is. We don't get to pick if we're riding shotgun or not. We don't get to pick where we're going to stop for dinner or if we're going to stop for dinner. We don't get to pick where we're going to eat at or sleep at or or how long, how difficult or who we're going to see. We're invited to be with him and to follow. Jesus invites us to be with him. Because I think for Jesus, it's not about the destination. And when we talk about Jesus being distant in this process of prayer, there, there's this invitation in the wilderness to just follow. 
You don't, you don't got to figure it out. We don't have to have the answer for why exactly we're here or how the heck we're getting out of here or what we're supposed to be doing in the middle of it. We just get to follow. Maybe, maybe that's good news for me because I've got a simple mind. But if I know that the invitation is just to be with someone and not have it all figured out, the stress level goes away. It becomes less about me having to figure it out and more about me just being with the one who loves me. Flip over to Matthew 14. This is the third thing I just want to encourage you with as you're processing. Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately he made disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, and he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And he cried out in fear, and they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart as I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on this water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him took a hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you're the Son of God. Verse 32 says, When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, I don't know about you, but if you, if you start at that point and start working back, I got a lot of questions for Jesus. I mean, to start with, uh, obviously the water's rough because they're not going anywhere. And so it doesn't cease until they get into the boat. So put yourself in the picture and, 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 and rewind that story. So just think about it. You're hanging out in the boat. Jesus and Peter are trying to get into the boat. And the boat is rocking all over the place. Now, I'm sure those guys are good in the boat, in storms. But my guess is they're probably tripping over each other, smacking themselves on the mast or hitting themselves on the, on the seats or the sides, trying to get them and help them to get into the boat. Calm storm, Jesus. Make it cease so that we can get the guys into the boat. You want to get into this boat? Make it cease and we can get in. We've already done this before, right? We woke you up the last time. It would come in real handy right now. Calm the storm. He doesn't. Okay. Well, why not cease it whenever Peter goes down? Okay, great. We did this thing. We, we got him to come out here. We realized he doesn't have very much faith. Okay, now calm it now and get him out of the water. Let him walk across on like 
smooth water. But he doesn't. Uh, how about if you're going to invite somebody to walk on water, would you calm the water a little bit? Because he invites Peter out whenever it's blowing. I mean, seriously, we haven't seen anybody else walk on water. And so now you're going to ask him to walk on water in the midst whenever it's really windy and the waves are going everywhere? See, part of our issue is that we want Jesus to calm the stuff around us so that we can get our minds together and know what we're doing. So we can have this conversation with you, Jesus. If you just calm the other stuff around, if you get me out of the wilderness, then I could figure out what's going on. So get me out of the wilderness, speak to me, and then we're good. Then I can hear you. The problem is the storm doesn't cease until they get in the boat. But the one that got me is this. Jesus dismisses them Tells him to get in a boat, go to the other side. He goes up to pray. He comes down. They're not getting across the water. And what does Jesus do? He walks across the water in a storm. I don't get that. You've made this. Why, why not calm the storm so at least you can walk across on, on, on flat water? Jesus cares about what's going on around us. I don't mean, I don't think he cares in the sense that he's got concern. I mean, I don't think it bothers him. We get caught up in the stuff in our life in the sense that he's distant and that becomes the story of our life as opposed to, the, opposed to him. We, we want him to calm the stuff so that we can have this conversation, so we can have this encounter, so we can process stuff. And he's saying, uh, no, it's not the point. Because I think at the end of the day, Jesus is more interested in what's going on in you than what's going on outside of you. And he obviously cares. Because if he didn't, he probably would have just told Peter, forget it. You can drown for all I care. You obviously don't have enough faith. I'm going to move on to the next disciple. Maybe the next guy that I call out on the water is going to make it. But you can't get it right. So I'm just going to let you drown. He pulls it out. There's a part of us when we get in the wilderness that invites us to rest. And that is so counter to everything we say in our world. We need a good bank account. We need a good running car. We need a good house. We need a good this, that, and the other thing. And then we can talk about following Jesus. Fix that, Jesus, and then we can have the conversation. And Jesus is saying, I don't care about that. That doesn't matter. I don't know if any of you um, ran across this. 
I'm not, I, I, I don't watch, I don't even know how I saw this because I haven't, I don't think we've had television in I don't know how many years. Not that we don't watch Netflix and that kind of stuff, but um, I ran across somebody who was on uh, America's Got Talent. And um, her name was Nightbird. Any of you familiar with her? I, I'd encourage you if you get a chance to get on and read. She's only got a few entries on her site. Um, she uh, sang and, and, and made it a little ways down but had to withdraw because of her cancer. But I want to read one of her entries. Two days before my 29th birthday, I made a clay bowl on a potter's wheel. I found that it doesn't matter how long you've been at it. One wrong move can make a carefully crafted piece suddenly unrecognizable, thudding around like a flat tire. Then the only choice you've got is to take the clay off and start over. At that time, I didn't realize it was a metaphor. metaphor. My whole life was about to lose form. On New Year's Eve, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Innumerable tumors were found throughout my lungs, liver, lymph nodes, ribs, and spine. I was on the living room floor, leaning over the report, hands on my head, six months to live, 2% chance of survival. Someone snapped their fingers, and two weeks, late, two weeks had gone by. I was in Nashville on a porch swing under a cotton January sky. The weather was groggy and gray. My one great love sat in the seat across from me, hood over his brow, and lit a cigarette. He shook his head and looked past me. I heard him say our marriage was ending. I heard myself say, but I still love you. Each time I blinked, I was in a new place in time. I was in my best friend's kitchen as she shaved my head. I was on a plane to California to see the doctor who could maybe save me. I was sobbing in my, my mother's chest. I was violently heaving on the shower floor. I was glazed over in a wheelchair, eye to eye with people I'd never noticed before, but now we're in a category with. I was a stranger in my body, far from home, cradling my own bones. I was a bald girl in the dark. I laid awake more than once, imagining what it would feel like to be the kind of girl that gets to be loved. I know, some, I know someone like that. She has long dark hair and hangs over the, the small of her back. Her eyelashes move in slow motion. She bakes bread in her bright kitchen window and her husband smiles when he says her name her mouth is rosy my brother crawled into bed with me and laid his arms over mine it was like we were toddlers again in matching red pajamas in the nights my lungs whiplashed me awake for air each time I'd sat up gasping he would roll over towards me and whisper I'm so sorry Janie I wrote a prayer that night Oh, great writer of stories, do you have space for someone like me? One afternoon, I got a letter from the New York Times, best-selling author of whom I am a huge fan. She sent a short note and some chocolate, and I opened it. I collapsed on the bed sobbing. I ate the entire chocolate bar horizontally in tears, soaked my pillow. I don't remember what the note said. I don't remember what kind of chocolate it was. All I know is that it tasted like God was trying to tell me he was sorry. He wanted me to know that there was some sweetness left. A line from my favorite poem says this, There will be days like this, my mama said, when you open your hands to catch the wind or in the wind, but end up with only blisters and bruises. 
when your boots fill with rain and you'll be up to your knees in disappointment. And those are the very days that you have all the more reason to say thank you. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the winds refuse to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. I haven't come as far as I'd like in understanding the things that have happened this year, but there's one thing that I know when it comes to pain. God isn't in... God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He's more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we're in pain, it must mean God is far? In the beginning, there was immense, immeasurable emptiness. But God has drawn to it like the fog of the sea. He stretched out his spirit over the world and he stayed. And the stories, I've heard, if the stories that I've heard of him are true. He surely is the nearest of all to me. To us, you see, the creator is still here. And he's always been hovering over the emptiness. I'm still reeling drenched in sorrow. I'm still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you. Because God is drawing near to me again and again and again. No matter how many times he's sent away. She was 29 at the time she wrote that. She died two years later. The cancer came back and she wasn't able to finish. Her encounters and her response to struggling with God and this idea of him not being present And amazing to hear the story of someone in that kind of pain and agony and despair and knowing that God is present and trying to be present with him. See, it's easy to think of the wilderness as a bad place to be, but the goal isn't to escape the wills of nearness. It's to be present in it. I'm not saying don't wrestle or don't move around and, and just give up. And I'm not promoting martyrdom or this pity party or I'm a victim. It, it's an invitation. See, the crazy thing is, as I, as I started, I told you about my deck. And um, as I was processing that with God this morning, and I just felt like, yeah, this is like building a deck because I can't figure out what parts to talk about. And then I thought, well, and then it kind of breaks down because, you know, a deck's a place where we kind of gather for community. We invite people over. I mean, my wife was like, you got to have this deck at least functional by the beginning of June so that we're having this party and so that people don't, like, die on it. It's a good thing, right? Yep, okay, okay, we'll get there. So we did. So you invite people over to hang out on your deck. But you don't really invite people to hang out in the wilderness, right? <laughs> it's not like on your top ten list of, hey, why don't you go in the wilderness? Be a good time. Except that I think it is. I think the wilderness is a place of community. But the community is with you 
and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he's inviting you deeper. And the thing about a deck is that when you go out on your deck, you see the world from a different vantage point. It's not the same as whenever you're down on the ground. You're up higher. You can see things. You gain perspective. And I believe the wilderness is the same. You will see things in the wilderness that you will never see out of it. And if all you pursue is getting out of it, you're going to miss it. So I want to encourage you. The wilderness sucks. <laughs> but somehow it's good. Because he's present in it. And because he's inviting you deeper into it. I believe as you get older, following Jesus is less about what you see and more about faith. I thought it was backwards. I thought as I'm over 50, that things would get easier and that I would know more. I'm realizing I know much less than I thought I did. But it's really freeing to know he just invites me to be with him, to follow, to stay close, and to trust that in the midst of the storm, when he calls me out onto the water, that the storm's immaterial. He just wants to be with me and with you. King Jesus, uh, help us. Help us not to buck the things that you're doing in our life. They go counter to the world. And we don't want to just be in bad places because somehow that's more spiritual. We want to be where you invite us. So would you help us? Would you help my friends to stay engaged with you, to stay present, to speak back your words when they don't have them, to follow and be willing to ride shotgun or the back seat, not knowing when or how long it'll be, and somehow to rest knowing that you're present and that all the other stuff that's going on and the things that are going on in that wilderness are not outside of your control. May we be present with you because you're dying to be present with us. Amen.